This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Every year for our fall colloquium, we invite an individual to speak about what it means to devote one's life to public service. Tonight we have a very special guest who will talk about what a lifelong commitment to public service entails. Pedro Ramos has served in senior leadership positions in government, higher education, and law. Mr. Ramos is currently chairman of the School District of Philadelphia's School Reform Commission and an attorney at Trubio, Rodriguez, and Richards, where he leads the firm's government, education, and social sector practice. Mr. Ramos has previously served on the Board of Education from 1995 to 2001 with his last two years as president of the board. Additionally, he has worked as city solicitor and managing director for the city of Philadelphia, as well as vice president and chief of staff to the former president of the University of Pennsylvania. Locally, Mr. Ramos is active on the boards of Project Home, the Ed Snyder Youth Hockey Foundation, the Philadelphia Zoo, and the Independence Foundation. He has served on the board of directors of several legal, economic development, tourism marketing, and education and youth organizations and the regional advisory board of two banks. Following Mr. Ramos's remarks, we'll open the floor for a 15 to 20 minute question and answer session. Without further ado, please help me welcome Mr. Ramos. Thank you, good evening everyone. For me. Um, the job you've given me tonight is not an easy job. Uh, I'm better at conversations than speeches or lectures. I'm not an academic and I haven't stopped too often to reflect deeply on my own motivation or affinity uh, for public service. Although I've never pursued, pursued a career in government, it is true that I've spent a quarter of my 22 years of work life in government or nonprofit jobs, and almost all of my professional life in volunteer roles in government and nonprofits. I guess why is a very fair question, so hopefully you can help me figure it out. My, my talk tonight is largely biographical and tries to walk through what has motivated, motivated me at various uh, points in life and the extent to which service by others has largely shaped my life. So I must start with the lessons of my parents, uh, Juan and Juana Ramos. My parents taught me that every person had an obligation to help others in any way he or she could. It was central to their lives as Christians, as Catholics, as neighbors, as parents, and as friends. It's how they led their everyday lives, and the only example my siblings and I had as their children. My parents had second and sixth grade educations. While my dad always worked at least one job, we were very low income. At times we lived in public housing, we received help from food stamps for a while, and we were lucky enough to get toys and clothes from the Catholic Charities at Christmas. Yet there was always someone at our dinner table that my parents just happened to invite to join us. Sometimes friends of mine or my siblings, sometimes just kids or people who lived on our street who happened to be around when we were called for dinner. 
On North Howard Street in North Philadelphia, there was a great sense of community. If someone needed a ride to a doctor's appointment or to, to, or to the grocery store, someone would offer without being asked. No grand gestures, just matter-of-fact support. As I was growing up, I had the added example of older siblings. My sisters were always volunteering for things. My brother, Juan, who was 14 years older, was a community activist and a leader, particularly in the Puerto Rican community in Philadelphia. At 17 or 18 years old, he was holding press conferences concerning the Philadelphia Police Department, ignoring feuding gangs in our neighborhood, in a context in which the police and much of government and society had obvious prejudices against minorities. Later, Juan was a founder of Centro Pedro Clavel, the Puerto Rican Alliance, and several other community organizations, and was a leader in the advocacy for a civilian police advisory board that existed for many years. In the late 1970s, Juan and others led an effort to occupy abandoned houses owned by the federal government, fix them up, and demand that they be turned over to people who needed them. He's been involved with organized labor in some way most of his life, and he served in a, a term in city council in Philadelphia. Growing up around activists helped me see a lot of what was wrong and to believe that anyone can make a positive difference. In elementary school, there were several adults that, were, that also reflected these values. The teachers who ran the student safety patrol, the teacher who turned the need for a traffic light outside of our school into an early lesson in civics, activism, and the satisfaction of victory. And the principal who was in early, out late, and cared enough to apparently know everything about each of us in his school. I also recall a couple of teachers that distinguished themselves neg negatively in ways that I don't think would, would have happened if, if we hadn't been Puerto Rican and poor. Middle school was filled with the smart and idealistic teachers on the ground floor of an experimental academic magnet school created to advance racial desegregation in Philadelphia. These early baby boomers were on a mission. They kept us busy and engaged in and out of class, and it was clear that they cared a lot. My high school teachers were older than my middle school teachers, but were equally devoted to the students. One or two teachers, universally regarded as mediocre by teachers and students alike, were tolerated and would eventually become the stuff of reunion stories. Amazingly, several teachers and staff continue to show up to school to work for little or no pay after they retire. Thankfully, they are also the stuff of, re of reunion stories. To the school's credit, Central High School had a lot more socioeconomic diversity than I realized when I was a student. Children of government and business leaders were friends with children of, maintenance man, of a maintenance man like me, relatively unaware of our differences. Now co-ed, the school continues in this tradition, and I'm proud that my daughter graduated from the school 26 years after me. Grow, going from North Philadelphia to the University of Pennsylvania certainly affected how I think and approach matters. I've often described the moment that our family station wagon pulled into West Campus at Penn in 1983 as my moon landing. As a school founded by Benjamin Franklin, Penn has always been about the pursuit of knowledge for the purpose of its application to real world conditions. Knowledge for its own sake is great, but with it comes the duty to apply it. The school gave a lot of latitude to student activists, including the activists that I became as an undergraduate. 
We read books and listened to lectures about places and times that achieved great things and bad things. And we felt compelled to deal with the present, whether it was diversity of students and faculty or the need to ultimately divest university fund funds from South Africa to accelerate the demise of apartheid, or to shock fellow minority students by referencing Dr. King to make the point that intolerance for gays was threatened, uh, uh, threatened greater intolerance towards every minority group. Like Villanova, Penn had a lot of committees with student representatives. If you served on them, read everything, paid attention, and asked questions, you could learn a lot about how to be a better advocate within the university. If you were contemplating a big rally or the occupation of a school building, it was best to know the rules and understand the decision makers. I met my current law partner when I was an undergraduate, and he was the president of the Latino Law Students Association, and I wanted to make sure that I didn't lead my fellow students into an action in which the range of consequences was not known in advance. For the first time in my life, my interest in the world expanded beyond Philadelphia and Barrio San Daniel in Arecibo, Puerto Rico. My law school education obviously gave me, gave me a profession with which I could support a family, but the most important thing I received from the University of Michigan Law School was extraordinary discipline and rigor in the pursuit of information and comprehension. I found that the law school's analytical framework gave me access to almost any subject that arose in connection with a problem or opportunity. There I learned to drill down further than I ever knew possible while being forced to continually consider context. Sometimes you need to understand the tree or even the leaf to understand what is happening in the forest. And sometimes you need to understand what's happening in the forest to understand the tree or leaf. And whether it's a forest or something else, it almost always takes people with different types of knowledge and disciplines. It takes more than lawyers to understand any particular thing well. In law school, I learned to ask better questions, and I learned to turn my activism into advocacy. I was fortunate to start my legal uh, career in a law firm for which engagement in the community and government was seen as important to the formation of well-rounded, well excellent counselor and a valued colleague. When a small group of younger community leaders approached me about being a candidate for appointment <coughs> to the Board of Education, the chances of which were slim, my law firm's leadership encouraged me to see the process as a learning experience that would have value beyond the small likelihood of success on my first try. Throughout the years, they supported my involvement on the Board of Congreso de Latinos Unidos and other nonprofit boards. I can't say that too many law firms maintain this philosophy today. The legal profession has become almost as short-term or, short oriented as much of the business and government sector. As a young professional with no family or friends who were professional, Ballard Spar taught me that the best lawyers care and are involved beyond their economic interests. My motivation for going on the Congreso board was that they were an organization serving people like my family. They wanted a lawyer. And I thought that the executive director and the board, almost all of whom were new, were smart technocrats. My motivation for agreeing to have my name submitted for the Board of Education was that I thought serving on the board was a way to help create more of the types of opportunities that I received at Conwell and at Central for others. And I thought that it would increase my chances at some point in the future when I had more life and work experience, or at least some gray hair. A majority of the board at that point were, uh, majority of the members uh, of the board were over 65 years old. 
I was a graduate, a parent, a business lawyer, and already shown commitment through volunteer service on the Congresso Board and Pro Bono Legal Services to families with special needs. Surprisingly to everyone, especially me, Mayor Rendell appointed me to the Board of Education when I was 30. There was a controversial superintendent, David Hornbeck, advancing a reform agenda, and a surprising number of important votes seemed to have one group of four members on one side and one group of four members on the other side, and me is the fifth vote. The pressure of being the swing vote made me feel obligated to learn the tree, leaves, the trees, and forests as quickly as possible. It was my duty, and I was afraid of screwing it up. The next following year, I was elected vice president, then president for two years, and then uh, president for two years after being reappointed by Mayor Street. Like the SRC today, the Board of Education was a volunteer position, so I continued to practice law. Superintendent David Hornbeck was impressive in many respects. He had led reforms as Secretary of Education in Kentucky. He had degrees in law and theology. He was an ordained minister, community organizer, and former Pennsylvania Department of Education official. He was a good orator, and he had admirable impatience with the status quo. He knew more than anyone I know about everything that had been tried or was being tried in education reform, although he was never a teacher. The first point of his 10-point agenda was the fact, not a mere platitude, that virtually every child can achieve at high levels with the right opportunities. He focused on student academic performance against fixed standards as the measure of the performance of teachers, schools, and the system. He was brilliant, and he cared deeply and passionately about children and the future of all humanity just not sure he enjoyed real people that much. <laughs> he, he sought to persuade everyone through moral declarations. If you disagree with them, you can be accused of just not caring enough for kids. Well, that, that did not prove to be a successful strategy for gathering a large army to battle for reform. Working with him, his strengths and weaknesses at that stage has influenced me greatly as an advocate. Hornbeck's rhetoric caused people to not hear the substance of what he was proposing leaving his cause in the school district with very little public or political support in the city, city or state capital. Mayor Street, Governor Ridge, and the Board of Education worked together towards a reform contract with the teachers union, increased state funding tied to increased city funding, and changes in governance, including the shared governance and oversight structure that became the school commission. While a period of confrontation occurred when Governor Schweiker that point, Governor Reach had, was enlisted by the President to form the Office of Homeland Security before the Department of Homeland Security following 9-11. Um, so uh, while a period of confrontation occurred when Governor Schweiker tried to contract out the management of all schools to Edison companies, the structure established by the board, Mayor Street, a Democrat, and Governor Ridge, a Republican, worked for several years. In January 2002, I answered the call to serve my alma mater, Penn, as Vice President Chief of Staff to the President of the University, appointed by the Board of Trustees, which a, ge which a generation earlier considered me a royal pain in the portfolio. <laughs> I have to say that my principal motivation at this point was my fascination with the superior executive and leadership skills of Dr. Judith Rodin, the first woman to be an Ivy League president and who's already had already saved the financial wreck of a health system and turned upside down what had been decades of toxic relations with the surrounding community 
while increasing the school's rankings, endowments, diversity, and undergraduate experience. As Dr. Roden completed her second five-year term in 2004, having announced her retirement earlier, I was preparing to return to Ballard Spar, where I would lead in, where I would lead an education practice. I had left as a partner, having spent 10 years primarily as a private sector pension lawyer with a lot of nonprofit experience. Before I had a chance to move, Mayor Street called me. To my surprise, he wanted to ask me to be the city solicitor, representing the mayor, council, all boards and commissions, and overseeing 185 lawyers and another 100 staff and professionals. This was the first time that public service meant an enormous pay cut. My wife and I literally had to figure out bill by bill what our monthly bills were to see if we could afford considering the position. In this instance, the motivation was less about how I could affect change in my community as city, as city solicitor and more a sense of duty as a Philadelphia lawyer and someone that because of my roots appreciated the magnitude of the privilege of the opportunity to serve as the, as the solicitor of Philadelphia. The mayor and I did not discuss how long I would serve, but it was understood that I would do it at least two years, but could not afford to do it for a lot longer than that. Thirteen months later, the mayor called me to his office to ask me to consider taking on the role of managing director, the city's chief operating officer, responsible for public safety, public works, and social services uh, departments and commissioners. Again, the position was difficult financially, However, the managing director's job was all about service, coordinating, leading, and managing across vastly different departments and disciplines was professionally and intellectually fulfilling. City council was pretty supportive. The, met, the mayor let us do our jobs. When we screwed up, the public would, it would instantly let us know. And, and what do you know when we did something particularly well, the public responded positively. The workforce did too. The motivation to return to the school district last November was also different. When I left in 2001, after six years, I felt good about my service. I don't think anyone had, had uh, and I don't think anyone had left and returned to the board. I certainly never imagined that I would, particularly at the, as the appointee of a Republican governor that I didn't really know. Four sets of circumstances converged, however, uh, and pulled me back in. <coughs> Avoid the Godfather reference every time I think of it. First, many of the officials and staff from the Ridge administration with whom I had negotiated and worked on opposite sides in the late 1990s were helping Governor Corbett. Many of them and I had come to trust and like each other from different sides of the table, and we were passionate about acting with urgency to get children into schools where they had a reasonable chance for success starting with those in historically uh, and chronically poor performing schools. We shared the conviction that the school system and the adults in it are there to serve the needs of children, not vice versa. Second, I couldn't stand to watch the various adult-centered and toxic dramas that were unfolding in 2011 as adult egos and adult economic interests clashed, leading students, teachers, and schools adrift. Third, I couldn't dispute the Corbett's team, the Corbett team's premise that I probably wasn't a unique position to be able to help figure it out and begin to sort it out. Fourth, I hadn't appreciated the extent to which my wife, 
felt the same way. With my youngest headed off to college, thought that I had to help if I could. It's been a long 11 months. I joined the SRC after Dr. Ackerman's departure and after the resignation of four of five SRC members. Since Superintendent Ackerman's departure, the mayor has appointed two new members and the governor has appointed two members, including me, with Senate approval. The governor named me as the chairman as the SRC, a body that is a combination of a school board and a board of financial control for a financially distressed school district. After being named, and prior to my Senate confirmation, I articulated five principles to govern for the short term. First, we would stay focused on the mission of providing every current and future child a safe, high-performing school that prepares them for college and career. To do that, we had to restore the appropriate lines of authority of the SRC, stabilize the district's finances and operations, increase the engagement of and credibility with the public, and build an effective leadership team. Immediately, we changed the time and format of meetings to enable more people to attend meetings with opportunities to participate in true policy discussions. Working groups and committees were established to tackle the tasks and planning required. Less than two months into the position, I learned that the district's budget problems had already become an urgent cash problem. Management had made a lot of cuts but had started at spending rates far in excess of revenues generated by state and local tax dollars and seemed paralyzed about making the additional cuts necessary in the time necessary to stop the district from literally running out of cash. It had deferred payments, spent one-time savings and funds on recurring expenses. It had extended the teacher's contract for another year without needed concessions. We reorganized the district and brought someone in with experience with managing the Philadelphia Gas Works through an, through an analogous crisis. We cut salaries and benefits from, for non-unionized workers, started talking to labor about concessions, and making it mandatory that, man that managers do multi-year budgeting. We closed some school buildings and reorganized some others, and we installed a team to manage the financial crisis. We launched a national search for a superintendent, and, there was, and for which there was a lot of interest, and I'm happy that we recruited super, uh, uh, an excellent superintendent and leader who I believe can succeed in this environment, Dr. Bill Hyde. Our, lar our large blue-collar union agreed to significant economic and work rule concessions to help the district after long and difficult negotiations. The next 11 months will be even tougher. The district has to close the equivalent of 40 schools get significant concessions from its biggest union, the Philadelphia Federation of Teachers, and continue to advocate for greater and more predictable funding from both the state and the city. So I often get two questions from friends and strangers alike about joining the SRC at this time. They are, one, are you crazy? <laughs> and two, do you enjoy it? I don't know whether that's a subset diagnostic test first. I don't think I'm crazy, although if I were, I don't think I would know. Um, am I irrational? And an economist may say I am, because in purely economic terms, it is a terrible personal decision. Uh, 
However, I suspect that this audience understands that the reasoning of public service is inherently about what you can accomplish towards a common goal rather than an individual gain. As to whether I enjoy doing this, I don't think I would call it joy, but I do find that the ability to make a difference through the application of knowledge and experience to a very complex and critically important matter is fulfilling. I was raised to believe that you help if you can. I was privileged to get the education, training, and experience to develop various skills while having the valleys of my parents reinforced by teachers and professional mentors. Experiences from my own life, from, from my service in nonprofits and government, have made me see the enormity of need and unrealized potential in our country, state, and city. These experiences have also exposed me to more people than I can count who give everything they have to give every day to serve the public's needs and interests as employees, officials, and volunteers. And I believe that for an individual interested in making a positive contribution to his or her community, the opportunity to have an impact on the greatest number of people still resides in government and nonprofit organizations. I'm thrilled that students are pursuing careers and other opportunities in government and nonprofits, while others are signing up for service programs like Teach for America, City Year, and others. That preparation, training, rigor, and commitment are needed more than ever in government and civil society. As you know, your generation is inheriting enormous public and social sector challenges. That's short for you're never gonna see your social security payments. As, as, as I reflect on the young professionals, graduate students, and undergraduates that I've met in the last two or three years, I must say that I'm encouraged about the future. You seem to have figured out a lot more, a lot faster, and to have a demeanor of seriousness of purpose. I hope that 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 continues to hold true and that you too see that regardless of how you pursue your interests in or duty for public service, you can make a difference and find fulfillment from your effort. Thank you for inviting me and I'm happy to answer questions or engage in uh, any debate if you wish. <laughs> Used to polite audiences. <laughs> so I was wondering this. Just kidding, all the audience. <laughs> There's a seems to be a lot of collaboration that has gone on in your professional life and especially in your position as chairman of the SRC. So how what kind of advice do you have for uh, current public administration students or working professionals on how to be effectively navigating the collaboration between the public, private, and nonprofit sector? Well, So for me, the I've obviously have found uh, that I've I've enjoyed the journey of going um, in and out of government, business, and nonprofits, and I always feel that with every move, I take something new with me, and I bring something new back, and that can be done through. You know, playing different roles and being employed in different sectors at different times. Uh, uh, or it can be done by how, as you said, collaborate across disciplines. I mean, that's a, a, a 
probably obvious in my comments. I, you know, I have a criticism about almost any sector is that we tend, whether it once once you get to a certain scale, whether it's government um, or, or business or nonprofits, silos. Are and um, and Fran can you know tell you that the you know you know at a certain level. A certain level of seniority in government, it's all about managing across silos and getting the collaboration, the communication, whatever technical skills you once had, you're holding on to to understand issues, but it's really about um, uh, uh, getting getting the most out of everybody in some kind of uh, collaborative way. Um, so, I, so I, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I tend to give the personal advice of, you know, change even if you know you're you know I, I've told people in, in the private sector you should spend a little time in the government sector just so you sort of understand it and by the way it's more fun you have more responsibility and all that um, and I often tell people in government and the nonprofit sectors to do the same to, to get an experience outside uh, uh, you'll take something you'll, to the organization that you go to and you'll also I think be able to bring something back. Um, so, so I would say, you know, to think broadly about this, uh, a, you have a lot of time, and, and I think you, you, um, uh, I, I think I got a lot of help early on, and not seeing my, not seeing myself as being what I did, uh, what my job happened to be at any when I feel like I mostly do the same thing no matter what I'm doing and what all I'm doing, I'm trying to do the same types of things. Um, so you went to University of Michigan Law School. So how did you take sort of your experience in a law school environment where it's a very ivory tower way of thinking and sort of bringing it down to um, working with People, you know, day to day, and bringing it to more down to earth. How how have you been able to go from that world into working in, in you know education and everything like that? Well, I mean, before law school, I had worked for a couple of years, and I was married. And I mean, when I got to law school, I had some kind of experience taken that was taken with me, and some of my professors weren't that much older than me, and that made it more fun too. Uh, and and professors just treated me very differently in law school than other. Really, when we're almost instantly, you survived their class and you got a really good grade in their class. You were instantly almost a colleague, um, and that was, and so it was a different way uh, of doing it. And 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 I mean, I just I just think it was a great place to get an education. Uh, it was, um, um, you know, any lawyer knows that the facts matter. So while you're learning all these arcane principles and all that, what have what. In order for these arcane principles to get developed and be articulated by a court, um, there, something had to happen that involved people. There's a story, there's a narrative. Something was going right and then something went wrong or something failed to happen. So you sort of understood, you really, you know, you, people will go and they'll get outlines, right? And they'll try to like remember, remember the rules. But if you remember the facts, you can always, you can, Understand the rules, not just memorize the rules. So, um, and when you and when you care about the facts, then it's people. You know, it's all people sort of confronting. And and in, in law school cases are always extremes because that's why they're in the, in the case book because they're just, 
it's an extreme to really test the principle. You're supposed to kind of reach a different place, but it's the you know the the, the case gets you to to um, to understand why you know uh, uh, a particular principle. So uh, so I you know for me it's all just problem solving. I mean you've got whether and big problems whether they're in business or any other sector they they all you know they all become policy questions whether it's a corporate governance issue where it's a legislative issue or it's a legal issue or it's a health I mean at the end of the day there's some kind of governance there's some kind of policy making that that is driving the system uh, you know the person who every day is in their job in the counter saying this is stupid is because somebody wrote a policy or procedure that made them do it do the stupid thing and they had this person hasn't figured it out or hasn't tried or nobody's asked how to change it so, and, and, yeah, you, all that was fixed before you got to Alabama, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, Fran did that with an agency who's probably one of the most broken agencies Fran Birch was the former speaker of this series and uh, uh, currently uh, with the uh, with PICA, uh, but previously with uh, LNI and the managing director. Yes. Um, uh, so, so I don't. Uh, so, you know, I've just there. Lots of folks will fall for the trappings of you know big firm practice. I mean, which is what you're getting at. Or um, the uh, you know I think the more successful, the, the better lawyers are trying to understand. You know can't be a good word you only understand the law and you don't understand your client and your client's business you can't whether or your client's concern whether it's a fortune 50 company or it's a parent with a special needs child you have to understand what's going on just it's hard to do that if you only stay in the ivory tower and you can't by the way especially in this area you're not going to understand the judge either <laughs> <laughs> Have this conversation now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm saving this one for after I left the SRC. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll give it a broader perspective. So the so let's see, what's the furthest I remember back? Um, well, I'll, I'll stick with your question. Uh, the the mayors I've known well. Mayor Rendell, Mayor Street, and Mayor Nutter. Uh, sort of a good look. And, and I know Bill Green more through having worked with people who worked with him and all the stories. And all that. I was like, often thought it was the mayor who didn't like to be mayor. <laughs> and Wilson Good, by the way, always says he enjoyed being the managing director more than being there. Um, but um, so, with with Mayor Rendell, I think Mayor Rendell is a, you know is, is obviously a passionate 
person who cares has cared about education, but it's also the ultimate pragmatist. He focuses in on the things he thinks he can change. And most pragmatic politicians, when they think of things they can change, the school district doesn't come to the top of the list uh, as an easily changeable institution. Um, so that's my view, whether maybe historically inaccurate, but it was my impression when I left the board that um, Mayor Rendell had waited too long to get involved in schools and had even had appointments to the Board of Education that he made where he wasn't necessarily committed to the person he appointed. So, you know, he was constantly juggling Harrisburg and city council, and and if he was indifferent about something, he might put some, somebody that somebody cared a lot about and he thought was okay on, on the board and kind of move on to the next thing. And, um, and then uh, and he had been involved in bringing David Hornbeck to Philadelphia. And I think David Hornbeck found himself politically isolated and doing what he was worst at, which was trying to deal with politicians. I think David's side of the story was that some of the stuff would probably not happen if the, the people who had recruited him here had done as part of the job for him as he thought they were going to do. Um, and I was, when I went on the board, as Ed Rendell's appointed, I was really, you know, I said, by the way, when I said there were four here and four there, neither of those factions were necessarily Ed Rendell's faction. It was like, you know, I was the only, like, Ed Rendell pick, and he had, I wasn't his first selection, but I was the first person who saw themselves as his appointee. Other people saw themselves as appointees of other, you know, one or two or three other elected officials. Um, Uh, Mayor Street got into it. There was a there was a um, charter change right at the end of the Rendell administration that took effect right before Street came in. So we got a chance to reconstitute the whole board, and it became people don't know this because it wasn't that it wasn't that long lived. But the the current city charter is a provides for a school board that serves entirely at the pleasure of the mayor in terms coterminous with the mayor. And it used to be six year staggered terms. So when I went on, part of the problem Rendell had also had, and one of the reasons he thought it was impractical to try and make a lot of change was that he inherited a bunch of six year term people in staggered classes, and by the time he would have a chance to affect it, it was gonna be tough. So that charter change happened, and Street jumped on reconstituting the board. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, was very involved. Street really uh, took enormous leadership, reaching out to Governor Ridge. Couldn't have more opposite people. Uh, and and Street had his Street knows finances. He probably still knows city finances better than anybody, except for him. But but uh, but Street was a master, is a master of city finance. Got his political power in city council, not from getting into a fist fight with anybody, but by really understanding the budget better than anybody. Um, and uh, and he 
you know, despite his lack of popularity with the with a lot of folks in the press, he never lost an election. He understood, <coughs> he understood other politicians, um, and he and he um, so he he reached out to Governor Ridge, and the two of them sort of and I was in at this point. We kind of laid out a framework that basically was uh, the school districts and you know. The school district at that time, the biggest problem was it had gained you know, 20, 25,000 new students and dollars were flat because in the early 90s when we all, when everybody thought the, sh the population of the city was going down, which it was, and the school district's population was going down, the Philadelphia's own legislative leadership agreed to a deal that changed the school funding formula that basically made it flat. So it seemed okay when we thought that, that to keep funding level when we thought the population was going down, but then the population came up. And that was creating a huge problem back in the late 90s because you know, we were starting to feel the effect of a massive archdiocese closings in the first or second round. Uh, so we had, the school district went from probably like 185,000 students to about 215,000 students in the course of a very short period of time, and the dollars were flat. That was creating a big problem. Um, there was, the city had an enormous I mean, this uh, tax overburden had, you know, the percentage of every person's uh, dollar was a higher proportion of every, of every dollar was going to some kind of tax for Philadelphians than anybody else. It was a huge disadvantage. No politics, you know, nobody could inc increase local taxes. Um, and the state, you know, and the state um, uh, was going to be pretty hard too. Uh, even when we had, even when we, even when elected officials from Philadelphia and Democrats controlled the legislature. So uh, so Governor Ridge and Mayor Street, uh, 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 you know, pretty much agreed that there would be three elements. One would be a reform labor contract. We would all, the, the school board, the mayor, and the governor would each have representatives at the labor negotiations. And the idea was we would keep each other honest in a way. So if you know there's a sense that labor that Democrats are more sensitive to labor, but the SR needy school board was there, and so was the Republican governor. So you know if, if it was the mayor that was supposed to be friendly to labor, he should go. You know can't do it. Uh, or if uh, uh, the inclination was going to be in the in Harrisburg to say, oh, that's, you know, that's Philadelphia, then, you know, the governor would be there and the school board would be responsible for delivering the, the, the labor contract. Uh, new money was really needed. The, the governor and the mayor agreed to each put in money, and recurring permanent money. Uh, and amazingly, they had the confidence to believe that they could get their legislative bodies to do it, and they did. Um, and that was a big difference. Uh, and Street became pretty involved. When, when uh, Mark Schweiker succeeded Governor Ridge, and, and you know, we were experimenting with getting uh, education management organizations like Edison to run some schools. Um, Edison, the guy, the CEO of Edison got very greedy, there's no other way of saying it, and proposed to the new governor that he just run all of them, and the new governor got heads of himself with that, and 
and uh, Street put up a very public fight. He literally camped out on the second floor of a school board building. It was pretty neat to watch. Um, and um, and then with Mayor Nutter, um, Mayor Nutter uh, has been, and Mayor Street had had created the office of like an education secretary. Mayor Nutter did the same thing. Uh, Mayor Nutter, in his second term, has taken has put education very much on his probably his top three list of issues, reducing the dropout rates for one of his like um, seminal uh, policy issues. And he's been pretty involved. He was very involved in uh, uh, working with, with Governor Rendell and Governor Rendell's team and bringing the last administration in, the last SRC. That didn't work out the way they had planned in the end. Uh, but. You know, and was also involved in helping turn it around afterwards. Uh, uh, Mayor Nutter proposed increased funding for the school system. One of the problems that we have in advocating for state funds is um, that we've got a little secret that we don't talk about that much in Philadelphia, um, and uh, which is that, and Mayor Nutter's talking about it, we have a very broken system for funding schools locally. Um, uh, the city has many, the city has a wage tax, which is a big source of its revenue, and has a, a number of other taxes, including a real estate tax. The school district pretty much just has the real estate tax, the UNO tax, the use and occupancy tax, which is a function of real estate tax, and some other taxes like a liquor by the drink tax and bars that bar owners self-report. So you can imagine that. I'm sure we're getting every cent on that tax. Um, but, but schools are very dependent on local school tax. And it's probably the most neglected system of taxing at, in Philadelphia. Uh, last year, it got so out of whack that for the first time that I recall, uh, the state imposed a default assessment rate because um, and I don't even know how that happened because we never we always made sure <laughs> that didn't happen. But uh, it was so out of whack that that this that it, that there was sort of a default rate set in. So what's wrong with it? Uh, a couple things. One is uh, local taxes are not based on actual assessments; they're based on assessed value. Uh, assessed values vary a lot; they're not consistent, so it makes it less fair and less predictable. Uh, and Assessments are, were done very infrequently, and then they were frozen entirely while the system was to be fixed. So in the period while that they were frozen entirely and the system was to be fixed, the school district lost about $100 million of growth, even a bad economy, and that's what the mayor was trying to get back when he was pushing the actual value initiative for $94 million new for the school district. City council would rather spend that on other things. Uh, so, uh, so not all that happened. Uh, one of the big challenges for the next mayor uh, is that I think the next mayor has to confront uh, the inability to continue to try to have government operate and manage and get funded and have decisions made in silos. At some point, uh, you have to look at the aggregate of all taxes and make choices. I was, one of the things that bugs me in this role, in this financial crisis, as um, uh, as chair of the school reform commission, is I know I still know the city budget pretty well, so I know things like 
things that we try to do in the city, expenses we try to reduce that are, you know, that just the right to start rent sizing in the city to reflect the current population and needs that were blocked politically. The city has, you know, has engine, fire engine companies that only get called for medical emergencies, don't get called much for fires. We have ladder companies that don't get called much for fires and are in places that don't have high rises or factories. Um, You've got, you know, you've got ladder companies of six firefighters uh, getting into a big 300, you know, half million dollar apparatus, six, six folks in really expensive equipment, really well trained and well paid and all that, doing ambulance runs. Then normally you could have three ambulances out there, more for the price of that. Uh, or you could have a few more school nurses if you actually thought about tax dollars as more fungible. Um, so I think you have to confront stuff like that. You have to confront that we've got to, you know, some of the things we have as uh, services that, that we get are, are built out for a million more people. And the fact that we always had them isn't enough reason to keep them going and, you know, can, and, and uh, while starving other needed services. Uh, so, so I think that, you know, the next mayor is going to have, you know, is going to have to, absent a booming economy, Somebody's going to have to uh, confront that you're going to have to, you know, there's not going to be the ability to raise taxes in the aggregate. When Street uh, put the city money in for state money, he didn't raise taxes, he did transfer millage. He just reduced city spending to increase school district spending. Um, and uh, that's what I like. That to happen in the next few years, yeah, I think that that would that would be a legitimate discussion to have, um, but it would take a different type of thinking, particularly in city council. Um, so, as part of the state takeover, the city is obligated to continue to give it the same funding level as it was previously, right? So that's like their minimum. So if they increase it by ninety million, they're then obligated to meet that new level going forward. Something called maintenance of effort. Yeah which says that current maintenance of effort says that for every local tax, for every local tax, for every local tax revenue, you, the rate cannot go down from the average of the last three years or something like that. It's currently not based on yield, it's based on rate. Okay. But, yeah. do, do you think that But that's, that's been interpreted as you know, the, the amount should go down. So, you know, their city council talks about grants from last year. Well, under the maintenance of effort, every time there's something going on, stays. Mm -hmm. They also don't talk about the fact that the school district has been getting shortchanged because they're not in assessments. Uh, and, uh, what was your. I guess, like, does that inhibit that kind of tax conversation about being more willing to? share resources because then there's this fear of long-term commitment so like in the project we did this summer I mean for the city to take over any kind of funding I mean it was like they had every lawyer in the city looking at it to see what their long-term obligation would be and yep you have yeah. to make decisions right you have to make choices right so you have to decide um, so the way you would do it is you have to reduce if you're going to increase your structural cost on one side you have to reduce your structural cost on the other you can't have 
the same infrastructure on the city side. I mean, the school district, we just reduced the administrative bodies by half. In this district, reducing, you know, we just reduced 10 buildings. We're going to do another 40. Yeah. That's what the whole government has to do in every, in every silo to be able to get the ability within the government to provide the services that we need today as opposed to maintaining the services we needed in 1955. Uh, so yeah, it, it would, so it would, it would lock in city commitment, mm -hmm. but that's a choice. You have to decide whether you want to increase, whether you want to have a system that is, um, Gets, arises to a point of being something that's valued, to the point of being an entitlement that's felt by all of Philadelphians. I feel like I'm paying taxes, but my kid can really go to that kindergarten. That has my, how I act as a voter and a taxpayer is very different than if I feel that what I'm paying in taxes is charity for somebody else's kid. Because, so the dynamic is very different. And it is a political choice that has to be made, uh, that requires, and I think it can only be forced to be made if you're putting it all on the table. So you're saying, yeah, but every year you're hiring people into defined benefit pension plans that you can't afford. Mm -hmm. um, and the mayor's just made a proposal to, I think, is he gonna move people to define, new employees to define contribution plans? Yes. Yeah, so I mean that's, the history of education uh, nationally as well as especially in Philadelphia since at least as far as I know the 1820s is focused on the inability to fund schools so this isn't a new problem but your autobiography that you shared with us this evening indicated that even in a broken system child whose parents support the education of their child will succeed even in a bad situation. And the question I'll, is, I'll put it differently. Okay. I will say that, that virtually any child can succeed academically with the support of adults. Okay. If it's not the parents or family, then it has to be somebody else. But I don't think that the absence of a functioning family or a traditional support structure is an excuse. So my question is, how much does the School Reform Commission focus on that particular matter? Because it seems to me that finances are just overwhelming the discussion. Um, we've tried to do in the last 11 months, and I just focused a lot on the financial, uh, is we've tried to continually articulate what we're trying to do in two broad pillars. One is the financial stability. The other one is, by the way, our mission is safe, high-quality schools for every child that prepares them for college and career. And don't forget the word safe when I put it first because people don't understand that. I don't feel that my kid is safe. My kid is safe. My kid never gets to school or doesn't learn. So you have to, uh, uh, so, so you, 
so it hasn't. So we, we, you know, we, we this year uh, or, or several months ago set a goal of decreasing the number of students in chronically poor performing schools by 5,000 and increasing the number of students in high performing schools by 5,000 as a way of just setting a goal every year to move to get a way of moving the bottom up. And we, last year, I think added about 5,000 seats to schools that are turnaround schools that are doing very well, um, approved a number of high-performing charters. We closed several non-performing charters and closed a number of uh, uh, underused schools. Um, and that's not just that's not economics, that's also uh, breaking sort of a cycle of the chronic poor performing schools. I mean, one example is a school called Edison, uh, which is near where I grew up. I painted a picture of where I grew up. Uh, I, I grew up, uh, uh, you know, not the toughest kid in the neighborhood, but not the biggest chicken either. And I was really afraid of going anywhere near Edison. I mean, near, near Stetson, which was a middle school. As an adult, I wasn't too happy about going near Stetson Middle School and uh, being Allegheny. Um, it was just a symbol of, you know, of a pretty rough place inside the building and outside the building. Um, and you know, kids were dropping out of middle school. It was if you went there, people would say parents don't show up to meeting. Kids are poor until we end poverty. Children, we can't teach kids to learn. We can't teach, we can't, kids won't learn. We can teach, but kids won't learn. Um, climate's going to be an issue. We need more cops. Uh, so several, three years ago, that was one of the schools that the school district under Dr. Ackerman did as a turnaround school where they um, identified a number of schools, organized a school uh, body called the School Advisory Council, which is parents, community, and staff. And I can think it's parents community, and then ran a process by which uh, several options were offered to the school as um, uh, as choices for a turnaround model. And this school community picked an organization called the Spirit, which was running a successful charter school, to turn around that school, Stetson Middle School. And I was a I was a skeptic most a sphere of, in some senses. I thought they were a really good organization. I hadn't seen them at work as a charter. They've actually turned out to be excellent. Um, but I, yeah, I just didn't know what's made. So I dug into this. Uh, what I found was um, in the first year, discipline issues almost disappeared. Kids were not getting expelled. Incidents weren't happening many large numbers um, and by the second year um, you know, students were advancing in much more than a year a year one year of growth per year um, and what changed the students were all the same students in fact more students of the ones that were there because before we used to lose more students from that school we go through expulsion or dropout um, Poverty hadn't changed. Poverty was, if anything, more. Uh, parents hadn't changed, but now they were showing up. Uh, so I 
So I, you know, trying to figure this out, I go up to this one young woman who's a girl in, in probably like seventh grade, and I say, well, I'm walking the halls, by the way, and I mentioned the middle school I went to Conwell. I walk, as I'm walking through, it was like walking through Conwell, or walking through like a science leadership academy. It was walking, you know, this was a school that you just like forgot where you were. It was, everyone was engaged. Everyone was on task. Everyone was engaged, not in some rote way. There was learning going on, and it was real engagement by students. So they, so I, so they say, you know, talk to whomever. So I go into a classroom, asking this one person, what this one a girl, what she's doing, and all that. And I asked her, like, I said, were you here before? She goes, yeah. I said, how was the, you know, how were, how were things before? She said, oh, it was really rough. I said, did you ever get into trouble? She, she laughed. She goes, yeah, I was getting into trouble a lot. I said, how are things now? She says, well, I'm getting A's, and you know, I haven't gotten in trouble. And I said, what's, you know, what's the, you know, well, why? What's the difference? And she said, well, um, you know, they, 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 they tell you, they hear, they, they tell you what they expect, they explain things to you, and they care. I'm amazed by how often I talk to students, whether it's in the school district turnaround environment or in a charter run turnaround environment, where in the first three sentences of what students say about what is different is their perception that now adults care. It's stunning. Uh, but as you, if you think of life, uh, this is a first model, but if you think of life as, as you know, working with children or being a parent, you, you remember how all, the, how there's nothing that's ever said or done in your house that kids don't know, that kids don't pick up on, and that that doesn't become the norm. So, um, so I think a lot of this turns, you know, we want to, a lot of adults want to blame, and they're, you know, it's not, you know, it's. It's it's not sort of uh, the structure in the, in the 1950s education textbooks in ed school. It's real life now, and some and some um, uh, I think pursue it with a sense of mission that their job is to find a way of of getting this opportunity to every child. And some people have given up or have changed their expectations. So I think that you know, there's no substitute for you know a, a family structure. When I was in law school, a buddy of mine and I, a buddy of mine had a very similar background to me. And, uh, we had this ritual of studying till midnight and then going having a pint, and that was the end. And uh, uh, and we you know we would, we we regularly just reflected on how the heck did we get here uh, in this ivory tower? And I, yeah, he's. He's from, the, uh, from North Philly, and he was from uh, from the Bronx, and you know, we had, and the, you know, as we just talked through our friends and all that, and everybody with you, we were, you know, one thing we all had in common was we had two parents at home, regardless of the economic circumstances and all that. It may have made a huge difference to have adults sort of uh, around. A lot of kids don't, but there are. Uh, a lot of a lot of places, a lot of schools, getting it done, figuring out ways to do that. The Kip Academy. Somebody was involved with Kip. Um, Kip 
and you know, and this is a model when you have a young staff, not, not you know, it's, it's hard to sustain uh, for more senior staff, but, but they give their teachers cell phones for free, which they have to answer until 9 o'clock at night. There are conditions under which if something's going on, the teacher has to make contact with a family member. And one of the kid mottos is no excuses. So part of that culture for students, for staff, is there are no excuses. What you have to do is make contact with the parents. So that's, that's calling on the cell phone, calling at work. In some cases, it's getting two or three other buddies and walking down to the house. But, but you keep going until you connect with somebody that's going to commit to, to keeping that, that, to supporting that student. And in the end, if that doesn't work, then you go outside the family structure or outside the school structure and get somebody else to play that role. But they don't let that student go without somebody to play that role. And that's a, uh, that's, you know, that, that, that is a, uh, a mindset, that's a mission mindset, not a traditional sort of stereotypical civil service mindset. Out of ignorance, uh, those teachers in particular, they're not unionized, correct? In, uh, not in those examples, and there are, I think, three charter schools that have unionized workforces. But you can have, you know, you have, you know, you have some of this in, in, uh, in at least one charter that's unionized. And, 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 and frankly, you know, if you go to Meredith Elementary School or Masterman Middle School, or Central High School, uh, or you know, Moffitt Elementary School, Kearney Elementary School. Just pick some, you know, uh, schools more in, in lower income neighborhoods. On, uh, they'll behave a lot like that. I mean, you'll find you'll find a, 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 a culture in a building where people, where the teacher will hound you down and and chase you down until you do something. And yeah, the and yeah, they and parents turn out of those schools, and schools where you know where uh, in other schools they don't. And sometimes these schools are right across the street from each other. So how do you scale that up? That thinking that you Through, you know, having it ingrained through culture, but it's not like culture just happens. 
it evolves from people conducting themselves evolving around certain norms over time. Uh, so I think first you start by mimicking, right? You, 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 you try to create the incentives for people to do the right things before they fully bought in. Um, and uh, then you really have to work at, at getting people to buy in. That's really hard in these circumstances. I mean, as we go into labor negotiations where we're asking people to make concessions, it's hard to carry that message effectively. Uh, our new superintendent had remarkable success in Prince George's County in really getting a lot of teacher support while uh, in hard economic times and getting concessions while really being able to be a leader of teachers and that's an extraordinary thing and I'm, I'm really, you know, I think he's got potential to do it here because I don't see younger teachers, we now have about, it used to be that our teaching workforce was very senior. Now it's about half is relatively junior. But the more junior folks aren't very active in, in the union leadership. And the union leadership is still very, very, very senior and set. Uh, set. And then the opposition to them is probably more conservative in some ways than, than the leadership. Uh, so I think a lot of that has to come up, has to be sort of grassroots driven. And I think, you know, uh, Superintendent Height has the ability to communicate with teachers in a way that very impressive is. Um, uh, uh, so I'm like, optimistic about that. As for system change, I mean, at, kind of, at a more kind of theoretical level. Um, so what I, what I don't think works is is what we used to what we traditionally referred to as system reform, which was if you just and it's what David and a lot of other David Hornbeck and others did. They figured if you had just the right elements and you sort of drove them, and they would they wouldn't necessarily say it was top down, but it was top down. If you in the center figured out what the magic elements are and then drive those into schools, then you can get all the schools to do the right things the right way. And, you, and almost nobody tries to run a big organization that way. I mean, folks in education are trying to replicate a, an industrial model that industry stopped using a long time ago when, when they had to spread themselves out into different buildings. Meanwhile, we've got you know, almost 300 sites and we're trying to run it like a factory. Um, so I think the, you know, whatever the management model proves effective, hopefully, in, uh, in running schools has to be one that is a lot more site-based. Uh, and that necessarily means that you need to give more uh, ability uh, to manage people and resources at the site level. And that's in conflict with ideas you know, very long-standing ideas in, 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 our, in our labor contracts that, that see the a teacher as an employee of the whole system with rights based on their seniority over anybody below them in the whole system. So I can spend years building a school that really works. Everybody's into whatever the, the plan is and the, and the, and the, and the strategy and the, and the practices behind it. Everybody gets their professional development and something happens at another school, 
that causes somebody, some, a teacher of a certain seniority to get forced out because somebody with more seniority is forcing them or they're shrinking, like is hap, could happen with our 40 schools. And now you're now more senior people get to replace more junior people in the in a building where you just spent. You know, uh, and that, that happened at, uh, near the end of the Ackerman administration with the Promise Academies, which was a the school district run version of the turnaround schools. The Renaissance, the there was a version that was charter run and a, one that was district run. One of the things that happened in some of the district run ones was that when they decided not to do some, people got to bump through and uh, you know and do forced transfers of people that were had. People that had chosen to be somewhere got pushed out for people who had, had not been selected and had not necessarily chosen to be in that part of that program. So that makes it a lot harder. But I think in the end, uh, you know, school districts, you know, large school districts, have to stop trying to think that they can manage from the top down because all you do when you try to do that is you all that gets through is whatever the barest common denominator. I mean, the rules that are set up are very risk averse because they have to work under all circumstances in all places, and it means that they accomplish very little anywhere. If you close the 40 schools, what happens to those teachers and students? And how many, I mean, how many total students are we talking about? So the, the, the issue is that we have, we have, uh, 70,000 more seats than we have kids in our schools. Um, and that's costing cleaning, repairing, maintaining that space is, is, is basically sucking $33 million out of educational, what, other, what, what otherwise would go to educating kids. Um, and that's happened because over the last 10 plus years, we have 80 new charter schools. Uh, more than 50,000 kids have left the district for charter schools, and we have the same footprint. So at the teacher level, uh, you don't have as, teachers move, but you don't have as much contraction of your teacher force, because that's already happened. You assign teachers based on number of kids. so. Groups of 30 get a teacher no matter where they are physically, uh, but but you you know but you often don't have some of the others. You have, you're going to have less uh, you know office staff. You're going to have less building engineers. You're going to have less utility costs. Uh, it, it, so the 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 33 million dollars uh, is not is not what we expect to get from the sale of buildings. It's simply the savings and operating costs of, of having 70,000 seats too many. And it should have been happening uh, incrementally over the last 10, 12, 13 years, but it didn't. And now we're, you know, we, you know, this new SRC confronted a situation where we came in. Uh, school, this, the body before us had adopted a 600, you know, 600 plus million dollar gap when they when they approved their budget, that ended up in our calculation being over seven hundred million dollars, um, and uh, uh, so we're having to do a lot of things very drastic. And one of the things that has to happen is stuff like that. You, 
you know, you'd like to be able to do it over a bunch of years, but you just simply don't have the revenue to, to, to spread it out over several years. We're doing a borrowing this year, a deficit borrowing of $300 million, not to buy buildings, not to make one-time investments, just to pay, just to cover the gap between our local and state tax revenue and other revenues and our operating expenses. And with a little, with a little wiggle room there for, so, you know, to protect us from any unseen circumstances. You only get to do that once in a generation. And, um, and every summer, because of the way taxes flow, taxes come in, don't come in in a nice even stream, they sort of come in in buckets. Uh, so every July, the school district, like other school districts, has to go out and borrow money in July that it has to pay by the following June. And you have to show, when you go to borrow that money, that you need to keep your cash flow even so that you don't run out of cash for payroll in July uh, and various other points. You have to show that you're going to have the cash in time to pay, to pay it with interest at the end of the year. And to do that, we have to do the type of you know the type of thing we're talking about here. We have to get very you know extraordinary concessions and labor. Uh, we have to uh, you know take the equivalent of 40 school buildings offline. Some of those hopefully you know schools might be you know groups communities. We'd like to be able to move communities to other buildings. That may be a lot. That may be hard in some cases under labor contracts, but but our but you have to do, um, you have to do uh, a lot of this stuff. Um, all, all you have to do, all that stuff, to just hit hit the mark. Or if you can't convince them that you can get all that done and hit your mark, then you don't get you don't get the loan. If you don't get the loan in July, you're not making payroll. It's a three billion dollar organization that, in around Christmas of last Christmas managers didn't know that they were going to run out of cash. I didn't know they were going to run out of cash until I got in there, but we figured it. But because uh, had I known it was, I, I really thought, I thought we had it like a year. I thought we had like, a, before coming on the SRC, I thought we had, just based on the budget numbers, not sort of the cash and actuals, and I thought we had like another year to work with. Uh, so it was, I can't say that I can't say that I, I think you know I, I don't think I got I got duped because I unfortunately I don't think enough people appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been a wonderful night. the executive committee of Phi Alpha Alpha, I want to um, give you a certificate um, of honorary membership to cool. the Villanova chapter. <laughs> <laughs> wraps up our evening. We're going to have a networking event in the spring, which I hope you can all come to as well. And details will be sent out closer to the event. Um, this podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.